Well, the title that I'm going with this morning is Default, Worst Case Scenario. And uh, we haven't gotten there just yet, but that's okay. Murphy's Law says, if anything can go wrong, it will. If you wash your car on Sunday, it will rain on Monday. If you go to bed early, the phone will ring. If you drop a piece of bread you've just spread thick with jam, it will land face down. If you take your troubled car to the mechanic, it will run perfectly when you're at the shop. Has anybody had that experience? Is that the way you think, worst case scenario? No matter which way you ride your bike, it always is uphill. If nothing appears to be going, uh, things don't appear to be going better, it just means you've overlooked something. And if you fiddle with a thing long enough, well, it's going to break. And the other line always moves faster. And if you're wearing carpenter pants, it's only a matter of time before you get caught. And you might say, now, I don't understand that one. Well, that one goes something like this. <laughs> the worst case scenario. Have you, were you, do you realize there's a survival handbook? For the worst case scenario, this is the extreme edition, if you will. And you can find things inside. This is talking about how to avoid animal encounters, how to fend off a shark, or how to stand up against a mountain lion, or who knows what all is in that book. There's also the worst case scenario business survival guide. Some of you here this morning might be saying, I need that one. How to survive a recession or layoffs or things of that nature. Or if you've been watching the news, this is a picture that I took just about a year or so ago when we were in paradise visiting my, my grandmother there. I've always loved this sign as a kid growing up because it just, it looks old fashioned. It has neat little pieces around it. And, and it was part of the, the mountain drive going up from Chico or wherever, uh, Sacramento, wherever you might fly into. But as you wind up the hills into paradise, anybody been to paradise, California? Yet some of you may have seen this video, horrific video, of people trying to leave and get out on that same little two-lane road. The sound we're not going to listen to, but this individual's actually praying, Dear Lord, help us. Keep us safe. Get us out of here. As you see flames on either side, sometimes you can't even see if there's a car in front. And so this, this is what was taking place, I guess it was on Thursday. In fact, I think that's the sign I just showed you a picture of going by. But on Thursday, there was a fire. My cousin Dan, I called him on Thursday night, and then he said, yeah, we've evacuated many times before. Uh, and so we evacuated. We went down to Chico. We're with some friends. We grabbed a few things. Uh, but, you know, you look around the house, and you think, I don't know if I really want to haul this, and I don't know if I want to haul that. And so they left a lot of things behind, but they grabbed some of their more valuable things just in case, and they left. Uh, their beautiful house. This is actually my grandmother's house there in Paradise. And this is us when we were back there in March for her memorial service. That's uh, in front of her front door. I remember these front doors as a kid, tall. I still remember the squeak as they go in and how it didn't want to shut right. We have stories actually of a mountain lion leaning on that front door and putting his paws on it, they found the next day. This is the living room where we would have Christmases. There's two pianos there in the back. And I really remember it full of people. And when we went for her memorial service, it was, again, full of people. You can see my brother there. Everybody thinks that's me when he comes to church. And my dad, that's my Uncle Don. He used to be the captain of a, a battleship for the Navy and, and Air Force and other things that he did. 
Here we are moving all the things out of Graham Melville's house, going through all the things that we might want. We actually took a, a grand piano. We took a marimba that traveled all around Hawaii and did all kinds of ministry and different things. But that was just this year. That's looking out her front door. Uh, this is my cousin Dan's house that he built uh, from a foundation that burned. And so they got a great deal on this house. They found the plans. They rebuilt the whole thing. He did much of it himself. And this is what it looks like now. In fact, these are the pictures that we got on the way to church just this morning. He said, yeah, my wife Heather, she didn't even bring a change of clothes. <laughs> she only has the clothes that are on her back. And they weren't sure, is it going to be standing when we get back? Well, they just found out apparently that it's not. Here's more from the side of all of their belongings that are no more. And we think Grandma Mella's house is the same way. In fact, this is the picture of the, the Paradise Seventh-day Adventist Church. Many of you have probably been to that church before, you know? Uh, my older brother was married in that church. My grandmother's memorial was there. She went there for a long time. And so you may recognize those. I guess they're, eventually they turn into raptors, don't they, as they just travel all the way up. We first learned the hospital was, was gone, but we have now since gotten reports that the hospital is uh, in relatively good shape. They were able to save most of it, and there's a few area buildings and so on, and there's some damage, and the high school is still there as well. Another picture there of the church. But there we all are in March. You know, and you might think, well, that's a, a, a terrible situation. That's definitely a worst-case scenario. But is it the worst-case scenario? I can think of a lot of things that would have been worse. Uh, Ground Malva could have been still in that home where she was that they had to evacuate. All of her things could have been there. And, you know, those treasures are sentimental and all those kinds of things. But it was neat that we at least have. In fact, as we were getting these reports, we were looking at various things in the house. In fact, our kitchen table now... It's Grandma Melva's kitchen table that she entertained all kinds of people on from that house and from that move earlier this year. And Dan says, you know, we can build another house. We're all safe. In fact, we got out early before there was traffic and those types of things. But we're talking about this morning, this idea. Is it the best case or worst case? How do you view things? When tragedy strikes or when something happens that might frustrate you or anger you, or whatever it might be, do you, how do you see it? Is it the best or worst case? Or we see it this way sometimes as well. Is your glass half full or half empty? What is your perspective? You know, when life doesn't go our way, there are usually three natural tendencies. There could be more, but these are three that we're going to talk about today that many of us go through. Natural tendency number one, we respond negatively. You ever find yourself doing that? Your immediate response to a challenge of life is negative rather than positive. Your first reaction is no, or you get annoyed or frustrated. Maybe you speak harshly. Second natural tendency, we resist what is new. Rather than embrace new things, we resist them. Are you that way? Typically, this comes more and more the older you get. I still remember my mom telling me when we were trying to introduce her to computers, don't tell me another way, just tell me one way. It's worked, you know, for this long before. Oh, but it takes so long, Mom. Don't try to correct it. You know, with new things, there's a level of uncertainty. So we resist, don't we? And the third tendency, we tend to view problems horizontally, meaning looking this way versus vertically, this way. We look at things with a strictly human standpoint. And oftentimes, our natural tendency is we leave God out of the picture, and it's not until our back is against the wall that sometimes we'll look up and gain a new perspective. So I don't know. Maybe you can do your own self-analysis, decide and determine for yourself, do I have these three 
tendencies from time to time. Today we're going to look at a chapter in Jacob's life. And you may recall that Jacob, well, he had a hard time walking by faith. Even though he knew the Lord for well over 100 years at this point in our story, Jacob wrestled with constantly feeling something of of suspicion or of negativism. He was closed. He had a, a resisting mind, a horizontal viewpoint. God would promise him things time and time and time again, but he just had a hard time trusting in faith. And so we're going to pick up our story. We've been going through the, well, not the book of Genesis, but certainly the largest chunk when it comes to a story, a narrative, is about Joseph and his family, if you will. And so last time we left off in Genesis chapter 42, and we're going to pick up today in verse 29. And these first few verses will give us a nice summary of where we left off last time. So rather than summarize, we're just going to read as the brothers summarize. So we're in Genesis chapter 42, verse 29. Then they, this is talking about the brothers on their way back from Egypt. They went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them. Now, if you can imagine, they've been gone some time. Nobody really knows. There's no texting. There's no emails. Are they okay? Are they not okay? Are they going to come back? It seems like there's been a bit of a delay. We know about how long it takes to get to Egypt and how long it takes to get back, but they spent some time in prison and other things. So where are they? Where are they? And any time a caravan comes home, what would happen but everybody come out to meet them? The dog is barking. The kids are yelling, Daddy, Daddy. It's the whole big smash. And then everybody wants to hear. Give us an update. What happened? Do you have grain? Tell us. And so it's story time. And so while we know this is the brothers and Jacob, I imagine everybody else is kind of crowded around and at their knees and and just listening and wanting to know what has gone on. And so they tell what's happened, beginning again now, verse 30. The man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. It's quiet now, right? But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Everybody is, of course, searching. Which one? Who is it? Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, verse 34, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Not too bad. I mean, yes, they're accused of spies, but if they're honest men, which they are, they're claiming to be, if there is another brother, which there is, all they have to do is bring the the brother back And he says, everything will be fine. You'll have full trading rights. You'll get Simeon back. Everything will work out. Verse 35, then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, here we have the patriarch, if you will, with everyone's attention, his sons, his daughters-in-law, their grandchildren. This was his chance to be the spiritual leader 
of the home, to turn people's attention to Jehovah, to recount the promises God had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Could God be at work in this? Does God have a plan? Was this some kind of marvelous, unexpected opportunity for them? Maybe Jacob would say something like, boys, I know this seems bleak, but this is the time to trust in God's sovereign promises. We need to call, recall some of them to mind. He will provide. Benjamin, let's get on our knees. Let's pray for your safety and let's watch God work. There's a reason he put that money in those sacks. There's a reason he wants you to go down to Egypt. We don't know what it is yet, but let's trust him for the answer. Wouldn't that be nice to find here in Scripture? He could have responded in faith, but instead we read in verse 36, and Jacob, the father said to them, you have bereaved me. You've cut me to the heart, if you will. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me, he says. Notice there's not one single fact in anything that he has to say. Sure, he believes Joseph is no more, but he isn't. He's choosing to believe that Simeon is no more, but he doesn't know that either. He's assuming that the same will come of Benjamin, but he's not thinking true and accurate thoughts, is he? We see this in the last phrase of his comment. Everything is against me. Do you ever use far-reaching statements? It's over. My life is over. There's no hope for me. I'll never get another job. We're financially ruined. Big brush strokes. Not accurate ones, by the way. Everything is against me. Is everything against him? His sons returned alive with provisions in their sacks. They also still had all of the money they went down with. And in the midst of crisis and financial woe, they have received grain from Egypt free of charge. All the prime minister is truly asking for is for them to be honest, to produce the younger brother, to show they're not spies, and all will be well. Yet Jacob sees none of God's provision. Rather, he freezes in fear and focuses on the worst case scenario. His response is negative. It's close-minded. It's horizontal. Where is God in all of this? Everything is against me. Woe's me. Oh, 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 oh. Spouses? Does your spouse ever do these kinds of things? Do you ever make some inaccurate, over-the-top statements? His sons had responded the same way when they found the money. The text says, they were afraid. Of course, that's what dad does. Something happens and you, worst case, now, oh no, everything's good. We're afraid. First time that word comes up in scripture is in Genesis 3.10, when Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. But the reality of the situation is, that none of these things are truly against him. On the contrary, they were all for him. In fact, they would all come out to be his benefit, right? They were all working together for his good, not for his harm. Doesn't look like that from here. Everything is against me. And God says, calm down. No, it's not. 
All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Don't speak lies and falsehoods. Speak the truth. Yet like Jacob, we are prone to be influenced by first appearances, to arrive at hasty conclusions and pronounce judgment upon incomplete processes. In Jacob's response, there is no mention of God. And he speaks to his sons as if they have it all, they have done it all, and there's no faith, there's all blame. Switching gears here a little bit for just a moment. Well, Dr. Nedley was here, he recommended a book. It's by William Backus. It's called Telling Yourself the Truth. Are you ever guilty of not telling yourself the truth? Yesterday I had an appointment I needed to be at, and then I'll come to this. I was late getting out of the house. Why was I late? I couldn't find my wallet. Elizabeth can tell you this is a regularly occurring ordeal. Kids! Elizabeth! Where's my wallet? I can't find it! I'm late! Where was it left? Well, let's calm down. Let's calm down. Where could it be? Maybe it's in the truck. Let me go check. Sometimes I leave it there. So I run out to the truck. No wallet. Of course, Elizabeth had the truck last. Why would it be in the truck? Of course it's not going to be in the truck. So I'm running back into the house on this rainy Friday, and I happen to step in doggy poo. Don't know it yet. Run into the house. Step, 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 step. Turn around. Oh. Five or six times over, I have doggy poo following me. Now I'm late, and there's poo. Where's my wallet? Take off my shoes, clean up the, the, the stuff, scrub, 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 scrub. Kids are all like, stay away from daddy. Tiptoe, tiptoe, tiptoe. <laughs> Finally find my wallet, clean up the mess, get back in the truck, on my way, leaving the driveway. Yeah! Take a deep breath. Flat tire. Who said that? <laughs> God is merciful and gracious, abounding in mercy. And I start to think about this book by William Backus, telling yourself the truth. Dave, calm down. I know you're frustrated and you're angry and you've kind of lost it here a little bit. But what's the truth of the situation? Well, the truth is I couldn't find my wallet, but I found it. The truth is I stepped on poo, but I cleaned it up. The truth is this whole thing probably set me back maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And the truth is I could let this derail my day or I could just decide, you know what? I'm going to be okay. The truth is, it doesn't matter so much what the initial event is. It matters how we respond to that initial event. Do we tell ourselves lies lies about it? Everything is against me. Not true. It's a lie. Because this happened, I'm worthless. I have no value. That's not true. It's a lie. But we work ourselves up because of these lies that we listen to that I think are put there by the pit instead of looking at the matter in in truthful ways. So here's an example out of that book. Marilyn had resented her husband Jack for years. At last, oh sorry, at least once a day, she told herself, I can't stand him. Any ladies feel that? Don't raise your hand. I can't stand him. I'm wasting my life with him. To make matters worse, Jack was a minister who admonished from the pulpit and spoke of brotherly love and humility and honor and being selfless. But at home... He found fault, made cutting remarks, and even, wait for this one, he would compare his wife with younger, more attractive women. My, my, my. Rather soon, she started to tell herself all of these lies, or we could call them misbeliefs. It's terrible to have a husband 
like Jack. It's impossible to be happy with Jack. I can't stand it any longer. Big stroke. I'm wasting my life. When she told these things to the counselor, he said, Marilyn, it sounds as though you're telling yourself you have a right to demand Jack to be a good husband. Of course, doctor. Don't you think I do? He said, well, I don't know why Jack behaves as he does. I do know that you apparently haven't succeeded in changing him low these last 10 years with your attitude. Marilyn, people rarely do what they ought to just because we want them to. But shouldn't he practice what he preaches? Tears are now streaming down Marilyn's face. And the counselor helped Marilyn to see the difference between what ought to be and what actually is. Every time Jack treated her unfairly, she would tell herself she had the right to get furious and to stay that way. But rather than constantly telling herself how dreadful and intolerable her life was, she could decide right then to stop upsetting herself over this behavior. The counselor said, suppose you stop telling yourself how terrible it is that your husband doesn't treat you the way you want to be treated. Suppose you tell yourself that while he may not do the things you'd like him to do, and while it's an unpleasant situation, it's senseless for you to upset yourself over and over again, wanting him to change. People have lived quite well with some very undesirable situations in their lives. Is that true? And almost no one has everything just the way he or she wishes it to be. And so he helped her go through. This is the same stuff I put up a couple of weeks ago. Similar idea. She told herself the truth about each of these. Things like, Jack is my God-fearing husband, and although I would prefer him to act differently, I can live with him without making continual demands that only go unmet anyhow. That's a true statement. Number two, it would be nice if he would change, but it is not essential for my personal happiness. Isn't that a true statement? Number three, I can live satisfactorily and happy, a happy life even if Jack doesn't treat me as I want him to. My life can be fulfilling and enjoyable even if he never changes. Isn't that true? The fourth one here, I'm not wasting my life. I'm believing in God to work in Jack's heart and make him the person he wants him to be. I'm also believing God is working in my own heart, making me the person he wants me to be. Do you see the difference between those two sets of, of uh, misbeliefs and truth? She discovered her husband's behavior was not terrible, although it was undesirable, to be sure, but it was not the end of the world. It was simply unpleasant. If her husband's behavior toward her was not a source of happiness, she could find other rewarding activities and involvements in life to bring her satisfaction. As a result, Marilyn knew, Marilyn's new behavior, as a result of her new behavior, Jack began to enjoy Marilyn's company just a little bit more. He had felt her disapproval for him for years, and he reacted by defending himself with attacks of criticism. So fast forward, long story short, when Marilyn stopped behaving in punishing ways towards him, he spontaneously reduced his critical and inconsiderate actions, and the marriage greatly improved. The problem in each of us is that we tend to overreact, to tell, our things, tell ourselves things that are not true and they're not accurate, to say, I can't stand this. Dr. Nedley calls that, I can't stand it-itis. And he says, there's truly only one thing you can't stand. You remember what it is? Death. Everything else you can stand. I can't stand this. Everything is against me. Not true. 
But we can work ourselves up into a frenzy to respond negatively, to pass blame, to think horizontally. But the cold hard fact is that if I get angry or upset or stressed, it's not because of what happened, it's because of what I tell myself about what happened. There's a difference. They were taking a dig at me versus they must have had a hard day. They hate me versus, well, they're not pleased with my performance on that assignment, but I can do better. She doesn't love me. It's over versus she's feeling distant right now, but really she's upset because she loves me. Isn't that a more accurate statement? What happens is not nearly as important as what we tell ourselves about what happened. And this is not, quotes, positive thinking. This is telling ourselves the truth rather than lies. Next time something comes up, some tragedy, some annoyance, and you find yourself making this sweeping statement, stop yourself then and there and say, is this true and is this accurate? Is that actually what's going on? The way they treated me just now, does that truly mean that I'm worthless? that I have no value, that my life is over, that I really should just give up? Of course not. John 8, 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What things are you telling yourself? A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. This is volume five of the testimonies. It says, many are weighed down by the anticipation of future troubles. Now that sounds like Jacob right there. I don't know these things to happen, but I just know they're going to happen. Everything is against me. They're constantly seeking to bring tomorrow's burdens into today. Thus, a large share of all their trials are imaginary. For these, Jesus made no provision. He promises grace only for the day. Don't beg for trouble. Don't pronounce judgment upon yourself. I'm going to get fired. I just know it. Do you? How do you know? And supposing it never happens, was it worth all the stress and anxiety and sleepless nights trying to prove your own prophecy true? I highly doubt it. Romans 8, 37 and 39. I've tweaked it just a little bit. Please don't call me a heretic. I've just tried to take out the we and put I, and I've taken out the us and I put me, okay? I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's a true statement, regardless of what you're going through. So back to our story. We need to finish. Genesis chapter 42, verse 36. You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. That's pretty rash, isn't it? Using his two sons as surety. Verse 38, But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. How would you feel if you were one of the other brothers? Benjamin's the only one I've got left. If any calamity shall befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down, on, down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Here we see fatalism is reigning supreme for Jacob. You might say, I know if I were Jacob, I wouldn't have done that. But would you really? Why didn't you trust God this last week? 
What kept you from seeing God's hand? What was your most recent test? Did you rest calmly in Him? Or did you push the panic button in fear? Too often we have negative thinking, a horizontal viewpoint, a closed mind to something new and unexpected. Aren't you glad God didn't put your biography in print for everyone else to read? It says, now the famine was severe in chapter 43. It was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. We're getting desperate here. I don't like seeing the, the hungry faces on my grandkids. Come on, let's go back, let's get more food. But Judah speaks up this time, verse 3, spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us dead, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send your brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so Israel said, why did you deal so wrong, wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? Do you know what he's virtually saying there? Why didn't you do what I've done time and time again when I'm pushed up against the wall? Why didn't you just lie about it? Why did you have to tell him you had another brother? But they said the man asked us pointedly about ourselves in verse 7. And our family saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. We told him the truth, Dad. Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. Both we and you also are little ones. And notice the difference between Reuben's rash statement. If I don't bring him back, kill my sons. Judah says in verse 9, I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. This sounds a little bit like what Jesus did, didn't it? I myself will be surety for him and for her. My hand shall you require? Let me bear the blame? Verse 10, for if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. What do you say, Dad? Verse 11, and their father Israel said to them, Oh, all right. If it must be so, then do it this way. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. I've been through this before. I presented a bunch of gifts. It worked out well for me, so this is what we're going to do. And take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And then in verse 14, he gets it right. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. Let's pray to God Almighty that he will do something miraculous, that you will get mercy. And if only he would have just stopped his little speech right there, but he couldn't help himself. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Woe's me. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down 
to Egypt. They set off with no idea the blessings God had in store. But friends, God had a plan. Cain was not yet ready for the children of Israel to enter into and possess, nor were the children of Israel yet grown to the importance in numbers and resources that they yet needed to obtain and hold possession of the land. Time and opportunity for growth was needed. God was leading them to a land of plenty, to blessedness, to nationhood, to a magnificent future. But they don't know any of that. Solemnly, they're headed back to Egypt, nervous, worried, scared, fearful. Yet I believe it was God's sovereignty that allowed every other door to be closed except for this one. This is the door to walk through. This way, my will will be done. When life doesn't go our way, we've looked at these three tendencies. We respond negatively. We resist what is new. And we think and, and respond to problems horizontally rather than vertically. By God's grace, don't you think we could respond a little bit differently? Number one, we could recognize and admit our negative mentality. When we find ourselves making these sweeping statements that are not true, we can recognize them, admit them, and say, that is not true. That's not the truth of the matter. God has a plan and a purpose for my life. He loves me. He cares for me. He's provided for me. And the same God that has brought me through before will bring me through again. That's the truth of the matter. Number two, stay open to new ideas. And I put in there for at least five minutes. We want you to be the new CEO of Incredible Incorporated. No, I like it right here. It's a terrible idea. I have to sell my house. Who wants to live in Arizona or whatever? Blah, 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 blah. Stay open to a new idea for at least five minutes. What would it be like to live in Arizona? What opportunities might be there? What might God be trying to think and, and provide and do through all of this? At least entertain the thought. Think about it for at least five minutes. And number three, turn our focus vertical. God, are you in this? Is this part of your plan? Is there something I need to pay attention to here? Maybe I should spend some time in prayer about this. Maybe we should gather the whole family together. Let's have a, a, a period of prayer. We don't know the answers, kids, but let's pray about this. It began as an old Negro spiritual, as a song of hope for those in troubled circumstances. It wasn't that long ago that America and its allies combined forces to defeat Nazi Germany and Japan. And then World War II came to a close when the atom bomb was dropped. And at that time in Earth's history, in, in our country, but around the world, people were hoping for peace. But then the Iron Curtain was being erected in Europe. At the same time, Americans began to fight and die in Korea. And then Russia was building nuclear weapons capable of killing the entire population of the free world. The Cold War threatened to bring about another much more terrifying world war. People were talking about World War III. There was an arms race that broke out. Newspapers ran stories of the two superpowers that could literally destroy the world ten times over. No, the 50s and 60s were a time of great insecurity in the United States. Students in our schools practiced atomic attack drills. Hollywood depicted World War III and what it would look like. In the late 50s, the headlines were screaming, God is dead. Many Christians believe nuclear weapons would fulfill Scripture in the destruction of the world by fire. 
It was then, as people longed for hope and comfort, that this Negro spiritual became a hit with its simple, childlike lyrics. They were encouraged by the song, He's got the whole world in his hands. Became a top song in the nation, number one. Did you know them? Some called it the Cold War's equivalent to the Civil War's Battle Hymn of the Republic. It sustained faith in an environment of doubt and distress. For the same reason we saw the hymn resurface during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the weeks after the Kennedy assassination. It came back again in 9-11 with its simple message of hope and assurance. He's got the whole world in his hands. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe God has you and me, brother, you and me, sister, in his hands? How about that little tiny baby? How about our church? How about your job situation, your marriage, your finances? Friends, the song is simple, but it's true. He's got the whole world in his hands. Yes, we can respond negatively. We can make sweeping statements. We can get ourselves worked up, or we can speak the truth into the matter and say, while this isn't unpleasant, there's some truths I'm standing on. And one of those is that he's got the whole world in his hands. He has a plan. I may not know it yet. You know the, the well-spoken of verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It doesn't say, for you know the plans that I have for you. It says, I do. It's a little bit of a different perspective, isn't it? God has a plan for your life, and he knows exactly what it is and where you need to be at what time and what will prepare you for this, that, and the other. He has a plan. He has the whole world in his hands. Dear Heavenly Father, we have to be honest with you that as much as we can be critical of Jacob, too often we respond like Jacob. Lord, help us to not look horizontally, not to have a negative response, but to think positively, think how could God be using this for his ultimate good and purpose? Help us to speak the truth into the situation and to recognize that you love us, you care for us, you have a plan for us, and that you have the whole world in your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.